Welcome to Obsessed Show, a podcast that is designed to inspire, featuring some of the most creative people in the world. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Let's talk about today's episode. Today on Obsessed Show, I am chatting with CEO of Bokeh, David Bates. Now, David has developed a reputation as a high-functioning eccentric who thinks in stories. David now develops campaign strategies and content for brands like Google, Instagram, Airbnb, WeWork, DoorDash, Visa, and more. Maybe you've heard a few of those. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with David Bates. Okay, kids, from the home office here in Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm chatting with David Bates all the way in San Francisco, California. David, welcome to Obsessed Show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is uh, really cool to have you on. I'm really curious to hear about um, kind of your your storytelling approach and some of the work that you've done. But but before we do that, I feel like there's an elephant in the room if we have any photographers listening or any uh, shutterbugs, people who are fans of, of imagery, and it's just the name of the agency. So uh, I think you pronounce it Bokeh, and I've heard Boca and all these, all these other crazy pronunciations. How did you guys land on how to say that name? I mean, I think we all kind of uniformly say it a little bit differently. I think that's the one uniform thing across all of everybody, <laughs> but um, the way that I pronounce it, I think the way that most of us pronounce it, you know, is, is Bokeh. Um, I think in Japanese, because it is a Japanese origin word, I think it's more bake or something of that nature. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things. We were, you know, we were a couple of film school kids before we really started. And uh, of course, in film school, everybody has their own pretend production company because that's how you have to introduce your, <laughs> right. uh, you have to have introduce your films, right? So. Uh, my partner, Doug, who is now sort of our chief creative officer, uh, he had his pretend production company and his pretend production company was Bokeh. And so when it came to actually starting um, our company and we're going through names and we're going, I mean, we're throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it, right? You know, Bokeh was up there. I had my pretend production company, Eclipse Entertainment, what up? And, you know, we had other the eggshell media, what have you. Um, we always sort of just fell in love with it because it, it, you know, bokeh effect in photography or videography is, is, is kind of just such a subtle thing. But when you put it in there, it, it kind of, uh, it adds a sense of production value. It adds a sense of professionality. At least that's the way that we interpreted it. And, and I guess we always wanted to bring that, or that was our goal is to bring that to our work. So uh, I know you were just asking about pronunciation, but, but there's a little backstory for you. And just definition-wise, for those those of our listeners who maybe have no idea what the heck we're talking about, it's those it's those fuzzy, glowy, out of focus bits when you've got like a really shallow depth of field, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. It is the uh, out of focus region of a photographic image. I think if you go into the dictionary on it, most people will recognize it when you see a light out of focus or a street lamp or something like that. It sort of orbs out, mm -hmm. and that's called a bokeh effect. And so you guys, interestingly enough, got your start in doing like more wedding video, right? How did you find that transition from, from doing more, you know, traditional wedding work to doing big work for big brands like Airbnb and Google? Well, I think, you know, for, for us, it was initially sort of, um, we just wanted an excuse to keep our hands on a camera. And so the origins of, of Bokeh really start with film and, and video. And so weddings, weddings were an easy way to keep your hands on the camera uh, because, of course, everybody would like a wedding video, but, but nobody wants to pay a lot for it. <laughs> so, you know, a couple of college kids, that was sort of just an easy sort of first get. And weddings turned into surprise engagements, which have their own challenges. And then they turn into sort of maternity shoots, which at that point, that's when it starts to get a little weird when you're sort of like in a field of hay with sort of a, a topless but pregnant woman and all you're doing while you're behind the camera is praying that she doesn't pop because the last thing you want to do in the emergency room is start to have a conversation about how this is out of scope. So, <laughs> so we started in that, in, in, we started with that, uh, 
kind of without foundation, but there were a couple of developments that started to introduce us into the world of kind of marketing uh, for businesses and corporations. First of it was, and I don't even know if it still exists, but there was a, um, a crowdsourcing site for content called PopTent. And um, what they did is companies would go to them, they would kind of post up, oh, we're, we're going to award, uh, you know, one video or four videos uh, with $8,000 if we like it. Um, and these are the parameters this is what you need to advertise. Here's our brand assets, go for it. And it kind of just let creators create. And me and, and my partner, Doug, we decided to do it for fun. And, and there was this build a bear competition. And uh, we came up with this idea where we created our own Muppet and we shot it. And first time out the gate, we won. And suddenly we had eight grand in our pockets and we're like, whoa, because at the, you know, other than that, we were getting paid for $500 for a wedding video. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that was very eye-opening. Uh, a second thing was Doug has always been a very avid Instagram person. I think he's, he was one of the first people on Instagram. Um, like sometimes they'll still send him sort of those little like gifts or books, like thank you for being with us all the way back from 2011 or 13 or whenever it was. Um, and, uh, somebody from Shutterfly who just liked his photos, uh, contacted him about doing a, a, a spot, a digital spot for their wedding photo books. So that seemed like a very natural transition into corporate to go from wedding videography and photography to a video about printing wedding photo books. And then the third, the third thing was, you know, uh, Bokeh really was a side project and, and Doug was hired at uh, Apple. I was hired at uh, Google as a, uh, as a creative, as a uh, video producer. And that really just sort of exposed us to the, the world of marketing in, in a much more hands-on and, and intimate way, which then went to inform the way that we decided to approach uh, building this company. So I'm curious for you personally, then, um, before film school, or maybe film school really was the impetus, but, but what's your personal origin story? Like, how did you find yourself in that world and partnering with your friends? How did I find myself in that world? Well, you know, it all, it all started. How did I find myself? Well, you know, for me, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. You know, since I was six years old, I had the dream of being a filmmaker, uh, watching Steven Spielberg movies. I'm not, I'm not one of those pretentious film kids as like uh, all about the indie filmmaker mm. and like Spielberg. Uh, you know, it's just like, no, I, I grew up on that. I grew up on Spielberg. I grew up on Nickelodeon. Like, I'm not going to try to pretend here and just say that Scorsese or Almodovar is, are my favorite, you know, I, I'm going to stay with my roots, like Star Wars, like Star Wars is sick, but <laughs> I, yeah, I wanted to be a filmmaker and, um, you know, I found myself going to the University of California at Santa Cruz and, I, and studying film uh, and also studying politics. I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of like to feed both sides of my brain and and the result of that is, well, in the film program, I got to meet some incredible students, uh, my peers, and one of them was Doug. Now, we actually met in, we met in a way, I was known uh, in the program for just giving really rough, harsh feedback, uh, really mean feedback to people, <laughs> not because I was a mean person, uh, but, but because their films generally sucked. Uh, no, but no, because, um, I mean, there are, there are sort of motifs that you'll see in, uh, in film students films, like, oh, it's always driven by a party or a plot is pushed forward by, uh, by drugs or alcohol or something like everything is trying to be deeper than it is. But I gave this extremely rough feedback because I wanted that feedback in return. And I realized that if I did that, it would put a target on my back and people would, uh, be extremely um, uh, discriminatory towards my own work, and that's what I wanted. I wanted that. I wanted that feedback, and I think Doug. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I think Doug 
caught on to that um, because you know he would get this feedback then, but then he interacted with me, and I'm I'm the nicest guy ever. Um, and I so I think he caught on to that, and then he grew he respected that, and then from there we just you know we 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 started to work together, we started to do films together. He shot my thesis film in college, and. Uh, you know, we kind of, it kind of went from there, but, but film and storytelling has always been a really big part of my existence. My passion is really in, in the stories themselves and in, and in the words and in crafting characters. And I think, you know, we've been blessed at a time, especially in advertising and especially with digital where, uh, and, and, and I think because of Silicon Valley, because of the products that we have to figure out how to market are also the, the most ephemeral products. They're platforms, They're, they live in lines of code. They don't actually live uh, in something physical and palpable. We have to find ways to, to humanize that. And that just invites storytelling. And uh, I think that inherent need for, for these companies to try to humanize themselves and make themselves more palpable and accessible to to their users and to their consumers really opened up a door for us, opened up an avenue for us to start to apply that storytelling um, uh, sort of in this, in this medium with them. So uh, yeah, hopefully uh, I tried to, I tried to keep my, my background more geared towards the film and storytelling aspect instead of telling you exactly where I was born or, or, or <laughs> what my, the awkwardness of my bar mitzvah with a cracking voice. Uh, <laughs> You know, so, so yeah. Maybe we'll focus on that on a, on a future interview. But um, you were telling me at the top of the show that you guys really see Bokeh as, as an integrated creative partner that works alongside your clients. So when I think about um, a client like Google Street View or, you know, some of these other software platforms, and you're talking about storytelling and humanizing, what's kind of the approach there? What's the framework or... How do you guys search for and find that story or that spark that creates that human connection? Um, you know, it's not always it's not always easy, but I mean, it really just does under you know. I guess the way that we've always approached it was to just think of what is the type of content that we ourselves want to watch. I, I think what gives us an, a very interesting advantage, and, and to be honest with you, it's it's one that we didn't recognize until much later until maybe the last couple of years. But we used to be, when we started, we used to be extremely self-conscious about our youth. Uh, we were just a bunch of millennials trying to get into this marketing game, trying to build relationships with some of these large companies and trying to pitch them ideas that, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes were above our experience level at the time. And so we were very sensitive about that. But the reason why I say it gives us an advantage is because, uh, I, like I, I mentioned earlier, like I was raised on Nickelodeon. I was raised on television. And I came of age with the internet. I mean, I remember dial-up. I remember AIM. <laughs> I remember MySpace. I learned how to code with MySpace. And, uh, and then when I became an adult, that's when mobile uh, proliferated. And, and so what's, what's interesting is that my, my entire existence and, and for most, for my founders and as Bokeh, our existence uh, into this world comes at the intersection of both traditional and digital media. And so we inherently kind of got used to how stories are told from one medium to another. We also got used to what advertising feels like on one medium versus another. And so I think that really helps us inform one, you know, how do we show a product and how do we tell a story? Because if we know what advertising feels like on television or what an ad can feel like, you know, on a digital platform, well, then we know what we want to avoid just mm -hmm. inherently. Um, but then some of it too is just really, you know, going back and just thinking to ourselves, like, what is, what is the product magic? Right. And, and being honest, being honest about that. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. I, I say this line a lot to some of our clients where, you know, they'll try to talk about value propositions such as, oh, accessibility and convenience. And to me, like 
especially you know uh, for 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 technology companies, but I think just in general, uh, accessibility and convenience aren't necessarily value propositions. They're they're minimum expectations. Mm -hmm. They're like minimum requirements, right? If I want to call an Uber or a Lyft, you know. I'm not doing one versus the other because one is more accessible or you know, like my like my expectation as a as a user as a as a consumer is it's that and so um, you know it's it's sort of like if if you see Uber touting safety um, or trying to create advertising and and trying to to start to communicate look at all the safety features we put in. And to me as a consumer, I'm not like, wow, I'm so glad they're, they're into safety now. I'm thinking like, <laughs> what the hell were they doing before? Right. Like, um, Wait, and, this was and, optional. Like that, like what, it's a new feat. Like these things aren't product features. They're not value product. They, they are what it is. That's what, you know, your product needs to be today. Right. Um, and, uh, you look at social media and the growth of kind of all of these direct to consumer brands. And it's, it's interesting now, you know, with like an Instagram, you can, you can hold a lot of these brands or these interactions in the palm of your hand. And that's a much more intimate relationship. So it goes to, it goes to show that you have to find a much more intimate or personal or human way to tell, tell a story when you're that up and close with somebody, uh, you know, that they're actually holding you. It's not like a television that you could just have on in the background. So, you know, how do you, how do you find the, the heart of that, the, the, the human story? Um, I mean, you, you kind of just have to lean into how consumers actually interact with these products, where they interact with these products, how they use these products and really how it, how it enriches their lives. Google, Google Maps, you know, the enriching part of Google Maps and, and especially Street View is the fact that it, it gives people uh, an opportunity to, to see or preview or experience a different part of the world. And that only contributes to the wanderlust, right? It's not, it's not in place. It's not in place of that, right? Uh, for Airbnb, uh, the the humanity comes from the connections that you make. And so when we did, and we did a lot of product marketing for, for Airbnb, it always had to somehow uh, connect the product to what the experiences that product enabled in real life, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it is trying to figure out what are the human moments. The, the human moment isn't ordering in the app or booking the room in the app. The, the human moment uh, isn't uh, searching for the directions. The human moment is, is you know, you looking up at, at uh, the dome in the Solomonaye Mosque the, the, and what that experience is like. The, the human moment is when you shake hands with your host the first time you arrive at your Airbnb. Um, the, the human moment is, uh, not when the food arrives, but it's, it's the excitement that's on your face when the food arrives from DoorDash and yeah. the, the, the moment when you get to, to dig into that meal with your, with your friends. So, um, I know that's a very roundabout answer with a lot of tangents, but, uh, but hopefully that starts to get you a little bit closer to how we start to think about um humanizing these products it's it's not the easiest thing but it you know the easy way to approach it is just how do we use it well tell me a little bit about i can i can imagine of different agencies and different sizes that ceo means a lot of different things in terms of kind of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis or what your responsibilities are how um how much are you getting your hands dirty in the creative product or how much of your uh, work as more leadership or administrative or meetings, and I'm sure it varies all the time, but how would you define your role as CEO for Bokeh? Um, I mean, I, I think over, over the years, my role has changed, and, and some of that change is, is natural to the growth of the company um, and just the needs. Uh, some of it is, is change that I had to actually accept. Um, I think 
you know, one of the hardest things for me to learn was, was how to hand off creative, um, how to hand off direction, how to empower my teammates. And that's, that's a skill that I had to learn over the years uh, to really allow us to be successful and also allow other voices within the company to proliferate. And in turn, that very much changed the way that I, I thought about how I apply my creativity. At first in Bokeh, I was very, very hands-on with, with all uh, parts of the creative development process. You know, whether it is uh, designing a story for video, whether it is uh, outlining the boards for a photo shoot, whether it is figuring out the illustration style, uh, the design style for an animated piece or, or working with a designer on, uh, on a, on a uh, ad for a ticket stub or any of those sort of things. I was extremely hands-on with the conceptualization of it and even hands-on with the execution, the actual production of it where I'm on set. Um, now that's not scalable, you know, from a business perspective, yeah, from right. a leadership perspective, that's just not scalable. You can't do everything. And I think one of the biggest things that, that guided us and, and guided my approach and, and perhaps why uh, as a company, you know, the company, the, the brands that you mentioned that we work with, there wasn't, there wasn't a, it wasn't a step-by-step -step process to get to those brands. Like I didn't start, we didn't start with like local businesses and then go to mid-sized businesses or a couple of startups here or there. And then sudden, and then we went to an Airbnb or an Apple or a Google. Uh, no, I, I just reached out to Airbnb, Apple and Google and said, Hey, I'm David. And, <laughs> and, and so, but I think that speaks to, that speaks to, um, a value of hunger that, that I had and, and the desire to have more and more creative ownership over the, the work that we do. So, um, my goodness, I think I went on such a tangent. I went into such a storytelling mode that I forgot what the original question was. I'm so sorry. You literally not only answered my question, but you answered my follow-up question, which is how you get to these kind of clients. But, but maybe, so I'll, I'll, tack on to the third question here, which is, you know, for, for all of us mortals, you know, there's, there are days that are not so great and there are clients that, you know, you have a bad meeting or you just kind of hit a dip, you know, what, what do you do when you get in kind of one of those uh, scenarios or situations where you're just kind of bummed out or, you know, something's not going quite right. What are, what are some of those things that you look out for and, and how do you kind of get yourself or your team back in the right frame of mind? Well, you know, what, what I do, and um, I think it's very much informed by my, by my upbringing being uh, from a Jewish family. So when we get into, uh, when we get into a rut, um, we whine, we complain. <laughs> uh, it's just, you might hear me in the, uh, they made us do what they asked for. What? Um, <laughs> That's a good wine you got there. Thank you. I, I practiced. I, I practiced. That's also how my mom sounds, by the way. Why don't you ever call me? Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing, and this is, this is always so hard, is for us to make sure that, one, we treat candor with candor with our clients. We try to be extremely transparent about the process. We want to try to walk them through it. We want to try to be on their team. But at the same time, and also we want to make sure that we, we empathize with them, right? Like not every piece of feedback is, is meant to shatter the scope or, or add time. I mean, we have to try to assume positive intent and positive intentions from our client, right? And we That's have a great to point. We have to try to thread the needle between their feedback and how that feedback actually manifests itself into design or, or uh, into the wireframes or uh, into the storyboards. And that can be hard. That can be hard because sometimes marketing speak or the way that a marketer, uh, whether it's a marketing manager or a VP or somebody else, the way that they describe something uh, can inherently uh, like uh, mean or, or get interpreted as something else to a creative. Um, sort of for, for example, you know, we got a, got a piece of feedback on, on a scene in, in a film, uh, that we're trying to produce. We're at the storyboard phase and we got a piece of feedback where 
they wanted to increase the scale. They didn't, I mean, I think it's easier if I explain the scene. The scene involved somebody on a bike. It mm -hmm. was, uh, it was for Lyft. Lyft has bikes. And the feedback was they want to show more, show more scale. Well, what does that, you know, what does that mean? And to a creative or to a producer, you know, it, that can automatically mean a holy, sh like, holy moly, you know, they want to add scenes. They, they want to add locations. We're going to have mm -hmm. to show bikes over here and bikes over there and bikes on the moon. And, and like, where, like, where does this stop? I'm going to have to position out of scope. You know, how are we going to do this within? And it, it starts to get crazy, but really what scale means or what it could mean is they just want to see more than one bike in the scene. That could be just <laughs> somebody in the background on a bike or a scooter. And it could be the same shot. You just see somebody in the background riding a lift bike too. And so that's, that's what I mean. Like it is, it is a very sensitive thing too, that when we get into those ruts that we always try to assume positive intent, that we always try to, uh, empathize with the client, put ourselves in their shoes and try to understand the conditions, the processes of approvals that uh, they have to go through. And, and also understand that, and I think sometimes this gets lost, that we can't always be in the room. And, you know, if, if our creative gets watered down, sometimes like, yes, it, it's easy to blame that on a client. And this is where like, we get and can get the most discouraged, right? You come up with a creative idea, you're, you're, and it gets watered down or, you know, it gets pulled apart. Um, and suddenly it's not what it is anymore. It's much blander. Um, and so who do you put the blame on? I mean, I think creatives like to point the finger at the client and say, this is what clients do. And I mean, to a certain extent that happens, but I think to another extent, it, it is creatives, it's, it's designers, it's storytellers, it's directors, it's not, not actually guiding the client, not explaining it in a way that's going to make it palpable, not only to them, but explaining it in a way and giving them the tools to then explain it to their uh, to their uppers without you in yeah. the room. And that I think is, is the key. We want to make sure that the creative we put forth is done in such an articulate way that even when we're not there, they can speak to it. And that's a challenge and that's a hard one. So like, you know, there's been many times and, and especially when you, when you start this from the ground up with, with no agency experience and, and you're trying to figure out how to work with clients and, and the projects and the scopes are getting bigger and the stakes are getting bigger, uh, you know, mistakes are going to happen. You're going to put in uh, more time than has been scoped and, and clients are going to ask for feedback that you don't want to do, but you know, you have to do. And, uh, you're going to push back and they're going to stay firm and then you kind of have to do it. And, and so you get into those ruts and, and I think it's just continuing to, to be mindful and just practice empathy and, and try to really understand where they're coming from and sort of the, you know, the needs, sort of the, um, uh, the things that they're facing on their end uh, because nobody likes to, put their neck on the line. Nobody likes to stick their neck out all the time. People will take chances, but if we can understand like where they're taking risks and, and then where they, they can't take risks, then we can better facilitate a creative development process and better guide them through that process so that we can help mitigate at least the perception of some of those risks. Yeah. I love what you were saying about explaining the pitch in a way that that marketing director can go back to the manager or back to the rest of their team and, and explain that further. And also the idea of having enough empathy uh, and understanding what the client's going through that you are always framing it with the idea of assuming positive intent when they come back with what can seem like a ridiculous change that you're thinking about why this was intended to be positive and how to really unpack that. Um, maybe shifting gears a little bit though. Um, I know with with your client list, it'd be impossible to say, oh, this is our favorite client, like picking your favorite child. But 
I'm curious if you have a moment that sticks out in your mind as, as maybe a favorite or proudest professional moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, we've had, we've had several and from, from many different points of view. Right. But, I, uh, could be a proud moment. I could, I could have a proud moment where I made a sale or what have you, but I think, you know, one of the more pertinent projects that we did and, and one that really sticks with us and we look back on, um, are, I mean, I'll put it a different way. I think, I think some of the proudest moments are when we surprise ourselves with what we're capable of. And especially when we do so like on, on some of the most ridiculous of, of timelines or the ridiculous of constraints. Uh, a couple of years ago, now it's three years ago, we worked with Airbnb and we helped them launch trips, which was a huge campaign. And, you know, it, it's funny at, at CES this year, I think, what is it, Quibi, uh, um, Meg Whitman's company with, with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, they, they announced, you know, they're, they're creating this entertainment platform on vertical. Um, and they're, they're talking about these turnstile ads, turnstile video, and how this is going to change advertising, right? The fact that, you know, a user can, uh, you know, be on their phone and look at something and the ad plays in vertical. And if they turn their phone horizontal, then it will turn horizontal. And, you know, I'm looking at the ad age article that's writing about this. And I'm thinking to myself, what the heck? we did this three years ago. <laughs> uh, like, it's, it's nothing new. Um, and, and we did it three years ago in working with, with Brian Chesky, the, the CEO of Airbnb, really out of the stated insight. And this kind of goes back to, you know, the point I made of really just trying to understand how your user interacts with the, their products and, as, and, and having empathy for that. Uh, the insight that it's really annoying to have to turn your phone 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, if you think about it, that is such a first world problem and <laughs> we all should hate ourselves for it. But then in the same insight, you have, you have brands, companies like Snapchat and now like TikTok platforms that have been completely built to optimize vertical screen space because mm -hmm. it is really annoying to turn your phone 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. So, so for this for this, uh, for this launch, we just inherently assumed that every piece of content we were going to create, whether it is, you know, some of the anthemic films or aspirational films that introduce not only what the new products uh, being launched are, um, but also, you know, some of the future vision of where Airbnb as a platform could go um, to to the ads, the, to the, the direct response ads, to the television, to some of the more functional kind of like uh, product uh, introduction films that are, that are semi-educational, semi, you know, more branded entertainment. Uh, we automatically knew that they had to be scalable across channels. They had to uh, be optimized however the viewer chose to interact with them. And so that was meant designing uh, a lot of these animated films in both vertical and horizontal. And uh, that presented itself with its own sort of unique challenges. But another big challenge to that is, you know, how do you, you know, there's so many parts of the platform that we need to introduce. We need to introduce the new itinerary feature and we need to introduce experiences and we need to introduce, you know, uh, shared hosting and we need to introduce, uh, connectivity in, in third world countries with, with a SIM card or something. So how do we do all of this? How do we show off the different parts of the app while also leaning into uh, Airbnb's humanity? And so we kind of had to create our own, we created our own animated aesthetic, you know, moving in and out of the app and moving through the app into live action uh, content and, and footage that we shot. Uh, to, to sort of bridge the gap between digital platform and, and real life. And, uh, you know, at the time, this was a very, this felt like a very innovative approach. Uh, now we're so sick of it because I can't tell you how many companies come to us and say, we want you to do that. You know, <laughs> we're doing the same thing uh, 
And we're just like, come on, let us do something else. We want to do something else. But, but part of it is, it is really hard to create that connection, a literal connection between something you see flat in an app uh, and to give that life and then also to connect it to life. So doing that with, with Airbnb, being a part of that launch and, and that really culminated we did something like 20 something videos uh, and pieces of content. We designed, you know, the whole animation uh, identity for, for this campaign. We worked very closely with the brand studio that they partnered with on, on all of the brand identity pieces, Kodo, on how to mm -hmm. translate their designs into, uh, into movement. And, and so we get out of this five-week sprint. And this five-week sprint, you know, this is one of those projects where we're moving so fast, you don't even have an SOW in place. This is so trust. It's literally a handshake agreement. Like, yeah. please take care of us in the end. <laughs> right. You know, we're, we've moved into their office. We're sleeping on their couches. We're, <laughs> you know, because it, it's just not efficient to work through, uh, work through chat or through email. Like, we have to be there right? We have to hunt. Everybody is sprinting and the challenge, like they're iterating the app as we're trying to do the marketing content. So things are consistently mm -hmm. changing. Um, and, uh, and so our team is going at that. And this was a time where the, the, ag the agency, the company was so, so kind of spread thin that I had to go back into the field as well. And um, I, I had to kind of play a more hands-on role and uh, it's not like we only had one client either. So that was happening at the same time we were working on uh, Instagram's uh, largest global business campaign. Mm. Um, at the time, I, I don't know if they've suddenly done anything bigger, but for us, this was, uh, this was uh, eight international markets. And in each market, we built a creative that really profiled three different sized businesses in a, in a very humanistic way. Um, really about what inspires their creativity and then why Instagram in turn uh, sort of empowers that creativity uh, that much further. And I find myself in, in Mexico while we're trying to complete this sprint and, uh, and I'm moving around production schedules so I can do this Mexico production for Instagram. And oh, since I'm there, let's hop over to Havana, Cuba, and let's sneak in a quarter million dollars worth of equipment. <laughs> country. We don't have no time for permits, mind you. So, and this is, a, this, I mean, this is the scariest, uh, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, I got through security. I kind of had an Argo moment with mm. this whole thing. I was a, yeah. a small team at six. So I decided, you know, like, oh, let's do all, let's split up into couples and have like all, you know, alternate identities, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I was with our cinematographer, Tobias. So we decided, you know, we, we were going to be the new age, uh, same sex couple. He's British, I'm American, you know. And, uh, and, you know, we're getting into a fight in the terminal. David, David, I don't know why you always have to make an issue of this. Tobias, you don't need three pairs of shoes for a two-day trip. Uh, but we go, we go, we sneak into, into Cuba and, uh, and we get this equipment in and they checked all of the bags and it was, it was, uh, a roller coaster and then we hop back from Cuba right back into Instagram and and then while I'm there I, I hear about how my team with with you know gets a midnight call from Brian Chesky about how we need to redo um, the spot that that shy day originally uh, did to help announce this new product launch how it wasn't working and we needed to save it and so we build something new from scratch. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a long story, a lot of tangents, but, but, but being able to do both of these very large campaigns simultaneously with a small team, uh, keep it intimate, uh, keep it collaborative and, and come out of it alive. Um, yeah, that's something I'm extremely proud of. Well, so this may be a, a little shift of question, but um, don't feel like you have to answer this within the 
uh, you know, design or animation or film vein here. But, um, you know, I find that creative people are, are very obsessed with what they do. It's sort of the theme of the show. So I'm curious what it is that you find that you are personally most obsessed with right now. Um, what am I most obsessed with? I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, when it comes to building this business, building this agency, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really obsessed with figuring out how to get this right. Figuring out how do you scale agility? How do you scale nimbleness? Uh, figuring out how do we, you know, how do I educate clients on really what it means to, to build creative and to develop creative, to do storytelling in, in a cross, uh, in a cross channel environment. Um, when, when I started, when we started Bokeh, I, I started Bokeh, uh, with this, with this ideal of, of not having account managers because I simply didn't understand what account managers are for. Uh, my, my experience had been uh, working at Google and working with agencies that, you know, agencies would bring so many people to the table. And if I had a question about creative or, or perhaps I just needed a small change on a design file, I have to go through account managers and, and, and project managers and associate producers and, and I, just to get to whoever I needed to get to to speak to. So I really wanted to eliminate those layers. The thing about like deconstructing, um, deconstructing something is if you don't understand how or why it's constructed in the first place, you're not going to necessarily be able to do uh, deconstruct it efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, the first time around. And so, you know, building this company from the ground up, learning how to build, uh, make the connections and build relationships and, and finding the best ways to empower my team. I mean, that's really what I'm, I'm personally obsessed with. And, and I think, you know, the story of Bokeh has always been one about obsessing over, um, obsessing over creative ownership and creative discretion. That's what I'm, I'm constantly battling for. That's what I constantly remind my team of. I mean, especially in those moments where you can get the most down, where you're not able, for some reason, something is not being articulated uh, to, to the client. They're not understanding where you want to go or what, the, what, what your intention is. And, and you just get so frustrated and you just want to be like to the client, just tell me what you want. And remembering that, like, no, we want to tell them and direct them where we think mm. they need to go. We are, we, they're coming to us not to just create this content, to make this asset. They're coming to us for our creative leadership, for our uh, creative thought, for our uh, thought partnership, for our creative direction. So even, you know, as easy as it could be or feel just to, to go back to the client and say, tell me what you want. Um, it's always remember, like, we're here to guide them. That is mm -hmm. what they're paying us for. Uh, the video or the television spot or the Instagram ad, or that's just, that's just the end product, right? That's just the fruit of our labor. But what they're paying us for, what they're paying us for is the direction in the first place and, and how to build that in an efficient way. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm consistently obsessed with, with, uh, with getting ownership and getting distress, dis, discretion and, and telling a bigger story and, and, and telling a broader story and, and, and telling, telling it across more channels and, and doing so in a way that's, that's fearless, even if it's something we haven't necessarily done before, you know, uh, like build a website or, um, you know, or, or build an entire brand identity. And this is, this is one of those creative, this is one of those creative things I often get into a debate with, with my partner Doug on is, you know, specializing versus generalizing. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's, it's one, you know, every agency has to tackle. Are you a specialized agency and you just create one type of content or one type of 
uh, deliverable? Are you a specialized creative video house or a specialized content house? Or are you generalized and you say you kind of can do everything? And the way that I thread the needle on that is like, look, our MO is content and storytelling and, and being creative. And ultimately, we feel that storytelling goes across the board. So we can do anything, but that doesn't mean we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to partner with the right people, the right agencies, the right uh, freelancers to make something happen, right? We need to bring in the specialized expertise to do something new. So I, I, you know, I don't know if that, uh, you know, if you were looking for something that's more of a design inspiration or, or something, uh, an aesthetic or style that I'm obsessed with. But for me, I'm just really always driven by taking more ownership, by telling larger stories, by, by really empowering the creatives within my, my company to really exert their discretion more and more and to do so in a way that's bold and, and fearless, but at the same time, staying humble to, to the client and, and empathizing with that. So it's a, it's a mix of hunger and humility and, and building a culture around that, that, that really drives me. That's a, that's a great, that's quotable. That's a, that's t-shirt worthy <laughs> hunger plus humility. Um, this is going to be maybe an odd question because I think you've been doling out a ton of great advice throughout this interview. But before we let you go, I'm curious if there is a favorite piece of advice either that you have received in the past, or maybe a favorite piece of advice that you give out to members and collaborators of the Bokeh team. I've always, uh, I think for me, one of the, the pieces of advice that really helped me uh, over the years is one that I, I told myself, which is persistence is a virtue. Um, I, uh, and it's just, I grew my company. I grew Bokeh. Some of the relationships I started were started from like a LinkedIn message. Mm. Uh, I started from a random email, started from a phone call. I'm not a salesperson. I just, I like to tell stories and I like to be real with people and, and to, to give them insight into who I am and, and what my dreams are. And, and I like to learn. And that's so so reaching out to people, being fearless and not being afraid to ask for advice or ask for help or get feedback. I think, you know, that really, that really kind of puts a lot of people who maybe wouldn't expect to be on a pedestal on a pedestal. And I think that actually that, you know, has given me a, an insight into humanity that's really positive. People are more apt to help uh, each other especially if you ask for advice, especially if you put yourself mm -hmm. on the line, will they answer your email, you know, uh, first in a way? Probably not. Will you have to email them a couple of times or message them a couple of times? Maybe, but just, just, you know, be fearless because at, at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen is that they don't respond to you. And if they don't respond to you, well, they're probably not worth talking to anyway. So like persistence, I feel has, persistence is a virtue that that has been such a powerful statement for me um and and one that's really guided uh guided the way that i've grown my business um and then i think you know there's there's the there's the things that we tell ourselves within uh the agency i mean we we have a trademark on on the the quote never stop creating and I, I think that that really speaks to how we uh, how we imagine ourselves, if not now in the future, is to to always learn, to always grow, and to always make something new. Your best work is always in front of you. And and even though I'm proud of some of the work that we've done, um, I know that I don't like any of that work. And I think. That's what a creative needs to do. You never like any of your work. You can be proud of it, but there's always something better that you need to do. You always have to improve. And so staying humble to that, not resting on your loyal uh, laurels um, or your, uh, you know, or your experience uh, is, is sort of an important trait. So never stop creating. Your best work is always in front of you. Persi persistence is a virtue. Um, I guess, I guess all of those can 
go and go on a t-shirt and then uh, <laughs> maybe on the front of it on the chest uh, I might say and and uh, and I'll be blunt uh, show some so show some effing passion totally yeah so that's uh, that's a lot of good t-shirt material <laughs> maybe you need to need, need a t-shirt line I probably need been- to split that up into multiple t-shirts otherwise it's <laughs> going to be a very small font, but kerning maybe all mess. It's always that. I'll, I'll have to figure out the design on, on that. I just got, I just got used to now designing as little gifts because uh, all of my clients, all of our partners are suddenly starting to have babies. Mm. Um, people are having babies all over the place. So I've, I've gotten into the habit of uh, making baby onesies, like designer onesies as mm. gifts. And uh and so I might have to start up a clothing line with quotes and baby onesies, I'm thinking. <laughs> I love it. David, uh, before we let you go, tell our listeners who are curious to learn more about Bokeh and maybe connect with you online where they can find you on the interwebs. Where you can find me on the interwebs. Well, I mean, you can, you can find Bokeh uh, at bokeh.agency. Uh, is our website. And, and that's literally, there's no .com, no .net, no .org. It's bokeh.agency. Uh, that same handle is, is used for our Instagram, used for our Facebook. Um, and, then, and then myself, you know, you find, you know, you find me on LinkedIn, uh, David Bates and uh, Bokeh. And, you know, from there, everything is connected. I don't, I don't hide anything. We live in a digital world. Now we all have digital identity and, and I'm public. So find, a, find us online at our website, find us on, on Facebook or Instagram, find me on LinkedIn. Um, let's have a conversation. That sounds awesome. David, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's episode number 132 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Of course, all the links are over at obsessedshow.com to all the places you can find this show, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcasts, chances are you can listen to Obsessed Show from there. Just head over to obsessedshow.com. The Obsessed Show is produced by yours truly, Josh Miles. To have me speak or MC at your next event, head over to joshmiles.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.